Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Ray, and I just want to do a quick prologue to this podcast. The usual format is filmmaker comes to talk to me about making a film, uh, or someone talks about a book they've written that's linked with film, and so on and so forth. Um, this is a kind of offshoot, which I hope to do occasionally. I've got a few lined up in the short term, but I think it's an idea I can keep returning to when, when, I, when I want to talk to people, um, not just about films they've made. So I'm calling this, this new offshoot Five Great British Horror Films um, because I think it, 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 it's worth with Britflix remit, looking at British movies, to, to, uh, to shine a light on, on films that people like and or love that are from the British horror canon, and that, that spreads far and wide. Now, the brief I've given to the person coming on isn't one to say, tell me the best British. It's just five great British horror films. And that can be for a plethora of reasons. Um, so... Because I don't want to get I don't want to get stuck into um, repeated shows that just go Wicker Man, Don't Look Now, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I want it to be I want it to be a mix, and I think that this is what the, this this series of podcasts will do is they'll show um, what a great spread there is of what would be considered great British horror films, and this first show is no exception. So over to a slightly different version of the Blitflix podcast. Three, two, one. Welcome to another Blitflix.com podcast. Today I've got with me a returning guest, Christopher Brown. Hello, Christopher. Hello, how are you doing? You all right? I'm doing very well, doing very well. You came on here to talk about your book, Video Nasty's Moments. Yep, a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago. And I think that was I think that was just when I was embarking on this daft adventure of podcasts. <laughs> um, but you're uh, you're much more of a veteran of the podcast format than, than I. So do you want to do you want to give the the listener some some background as to what you've been up to and then what you are up to? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I've been uh, podcasting for six years. Um, I started out with a podcast about the Rod Serling TV show, uh, the Night Gallery. Uh, so it's the Night Gallery podcast that ran for. Um, uh, two and a half years. Then I did the Video Nasties podcast, which covered all the films from the uh, the DPP ban list uh, and, and had been on that. So that's uh, 70 odd uh, podcasts and that ran 2013, 2014. Then uh, I did last year a podcast called History of Horror, which was 
a very kind of broad kind of look at horror cinema from you know the, the birth of cinema in the uh, early um, you know the, the, the early 20th century uh, through to present day. And now I'm doing a podcast called uh, The Last Horror Podcast, which is far more general kind of podcast, just talking about uh, horror cinema generally and, and, and storytelling and, you know, a couple of couple of short stories, that kind of thing. Far more uh, far more broad, I think it's fair to say. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've kind of, you know, written about horror for, for a while, I suppose. Yeah, no, and, and so with that in mind, uh, I, I, and I'm a big fan of, certainly fan of the... the the, the current podcast and the previous two series you did, um, I think for anyone that's interested in horror film, I think you're, you, you are providing, a, I mean, it's, it's an amazing socialistic document, a very, you know, a very valuable commentary on what, what went on. The co- context is all, and I certainly think you know, the Video Nasty one was amazing for setting the context, what was going on, as much as it was talking about a bunch of shitty films that we shouldn't, <laughs> as much as we should and shouldn't see, you know. And you know, as we as we and like anything, history can always remind us today what the, the what's going wrong today is, never, is no different than what went wrong before. Um, and it's weird to look at that through the prism of horror censorship, for example. Uh, no, absolutely. I think um, certainly uh, we will. You know, we are currently embarking on making some more, more mistakes that we, we have made in the past, as 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 we tend to with um, certain types of governments and certain types of um, economic. Elements without going too much into the the socio economic elements, which led to banning Evil Dead <laughs> or, or possession. Well, I'm, th- I'm thinking more. I'm thinking more that we're going to end up with um, with funders are going to be making more Death Wish films. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that might not be a bad thing. I like Death Wish Three. It has a certain um, horrible griminess to it, while it's being deeply absurd. Any film with a rocket launcher is going to be good. <laughs> I, uh, I screened that at a community cinema in Liverpool uh, yeah. last year, and five people turned up, and all of them went, why are you showing this one? <laughs> so, so even, even the hardcore couldn't get their heads around. I was going to say, isn't, isn't, isn't Death Wish 5 the kind of, the piece de resistance of the campness and ridiculousness of where the Death Wish franchise ended up? Because isn't, um, isn't that one with the nail board under the door? Where no, that's where... free. That's free. Oh, is that three? So where 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 Charles Bronson's walking around in his in his natty tweed jacket around what looks like the set of Mad Max. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's New York, but it's London Docklands, so because it was a canon film. But yeah, no, uh, four and five, four and five. The, the 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 it's restricted by its budgets, but uh, three they were still willing to throw just a, a shed Jeez. ton of money at it. It's uh, it's a it's a glorious thing. Now you've you've picked. A top five British horror films for us to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to name them, so you don't know up front for the audience won't know. What we are going to do is a bit of fun, and to stop us rambling, because we both like talking, um, <laughs> is I'm setting us a ten-minute limit on each film, and, and, and hopefully this will be more you talking about the film than me. I mean, I'll join in with you, obviously I'm not going to let you just, I'm not going to leave you dangling like monologuing. But, yeah, yeah. But I think if I set us a, a ten-minute alarm on each one, we'll have to just stop at each one, because if we do all five, that'll be 50 minutes, and then we'll do a wrap-up as to why you chose those films. Because I think, I think they're, they're, they're an interesting selection, and I think they're worthy of not just the, the, why you like the films themselves and what appeals to them, but also, you know, generally this, this collection of five. It's maybe not... A, it's got atypical ones in there, but it's got very untypical ones in there as well. So I think that we need to... If we give ourselves a bit of time, and that's kind of roughly an hour all told, yeah? 
Cool, yeah, brilliant. All right, then, I'm going to start the clock on 1971. What film have you chosen for that year? Okay, um... I've, I've just, I hadn't realised quite how much of the, my choices were condensed into quite a small period <laughs> of history, first off. You know, basically just ignored all of Hammer and just gone straight for, um, for, for, for folk horror. Um, it's Blood on Satan's Claw, so um, I think if you were going to pick... The reason why I picked this one particularly, and, and I think you said atypical, I've tried to avoid... The obvious stuff, because I mean, you, you can easily, you know, the, the, there is a, an alternative list of the best British horror films, which are, you know, Wicker Man and that kind of thing. And, mm. and but obviously, Blood and Satan's Claw fits in something called the Unholy Trilogy, which is that, uh, Witch Finder General and The Wicker Man are being free folk horror films. Mm. Now, I think Blood on Satan's Claw probably is the one out the three that is, um, I wouldn't say ignored. It's not ignored. It's a, you know you can get it on Blu-ray. It's not like a lost classic, but it doesn't quite get the love I think that it uh, that it deserves. And I think the reason for that is that once you put it with those or two other films, it can kind of come across as being a little bit unusual because it has a strange structure to it. Mm. But it's very very distinctive. And in actual fact, uh, Pierce Haggard, who directed it, came up with the term folk horror which kind of permeates pretty much all of, um, you know, British horror now. You know, if, if, if anything involving a field at any point or somewhere near woods gets sucked into this kind of, oh, it must be some kind of folk horror element to it. Did Pierce come up with it in the back in the day? Or how long after the event? It's after the event. He's kind of trying to explain what his thought process was about what he wanted to do. Okay. And he, you know, because the term folk horror, you know, appears originally in, in that Gattis documentary. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Horror. And that, that's where it came from. But it actually, it was Haggard that said it first. Um, and, you know, what he wanted, you know, and I think it, for me that explains far better what Blood on Satan's Claw is. Not a folk horror in the terms of, you know, witchy stuff going on and it's all very English mm. and all villages are, are coming to get you. But... It very much has a, a tone and a feel to it, and it, it feels otherworldly, and it's very striking. I mean, the actual Satan's claw element of like a, you know, somebody's tore down and chewed down to the bone on, on their own hand to create a claw in their, a fit of madness is such a striking image. Um, so, yeah, and, and it's got Linda Hayden in as well, which always gets two thumbs up. Oh, it's good. I mean, I should, we should probably, for those, I, I've done, uh, for, for ease, I've given myself some brief summaries, which I've, I've liberally taken from IMDb. So to give people a sense who don't know Blood on Satan's Claw, it's a horror thriller set in the 17th century. I mean, of the ones you've picked, it's the only period one. Uh, and it's about children of a village slowly converting into a coven of devil worshippers, which, given what you've already said, only, does, only tells part of the story, doesn't it, really, of what, what, what appeals about Blood on Satan's Claw. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the, I mean, the story's great, and it's kind of, you know, it does have that kind of, you know, and anything with with sinister villages in, I'm I'm a big fan of. Mm. But um, it has an unusual structure because originally it was written as three separate stories, okay. um, each about half hour, and the and the and when it in the rewrite, the kind of it kind of all kind of comes together as 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 one. So it's it's an overarching thing, which is why as an act structure, it feels quite odd and a bit off. Um. 
I think you know that that first that first thirty minutes. If you compare it to the first thirty minutes to the last thirty minutes, they they feel like they could be two completely different films. Mm. Um, it you know one's all you know, admittedly the first thirty minutes is all foreboding and foreshadowing of terrible events to come. Mm. But um, but the, so from that point of view, I can kind of understand why people are a bit offish about Blood and Satan's Club because it does feel very you know it, it's an unusually structured film. But what it does have is first off a fantastic period setting, um, mm. better than I'd argue. Uh, it, it does that period thing better than Blood, which Finds General does. I agree which, you know, with you completely. It's sacrilege, you know. But I agree with you. I agree with you completely. But yeah, it, it just it feels and it feels otherworldly. And I think good horror does sometimes need to feel like it's running completely on its own rules. And that's aside from the fact that obviously it's 17th century, and everyone's just blindly accepts the idea that, 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 that somebody like Linda Hayden would be a witch. Mm. And I think unlike a lot of stuff maybe now where it kind of would kind of insinuate that maybe she isn't, maybe there's something, it, it, it pretty much kind of says, because I think from a modern viewpoint now you watch it and kind of think to yourself, well, obviously she's not. It's just they're going to do something terrible. It's going to turn into like this witch finder general thing, and it's it's going to all fall apart and be awful. And and this case, it doesn't. It just says, yep, the world is terrible. There is awful supernatural in the woods, and the kids are one hundred percent, you know, fighting against society. Um, I think it very much reflects its time as well. It feels like a kind of a a sixties kind of counterculture kind of film possibly you know maybe a little bit later you know obviously because we're you know we're talking early 70s but that's time um i always kind of think that you know you could flip those two films around between this and uh, witch finder general and right. they would probably match the tone of the time a little bit better so um blood and satan's claw it maybe kind of would feel a bit more late 60s of you know adults fearing Arising from chill, you know, from 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 the youth as they kind of, you know, show new new ideas, and obviously there's a lot of terms of I'd say flower power, but it's not really, is it? Because it's all kind of heavily built in this kind of folky, witchy kind of tone. Well, but also as well the kind of the, the, the fear the fear of the next generation mm. changing your conservative view of the world is 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 a pretty pretty standard trope, isn't it? And yeah. going going through, you know, starts in folklore, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> and given given the the cultural change that had gone on in the sixties and the seventies was kind of like almost like the fallout of it, so it's not a surprise that films were still channeling that, just given the nature of how long a film gets takes to get made. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, you could argue that Witch Finds a General with its nihilism kind of matches that kind of death of the you know the summer of love and the the kind of feeling that. Um, the word, it, it, that there's something distinctly wrong and, you know, the, this revolution possibly isn't going to be what people expect it to be. But, you know, from a, from a, but it's, you know, that was obviously 68 when we were still Well, then you, but then you, you, you could say, which find the general? And then you go, Altamont, where the Hell's Angels kill hippies. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, the, the hippie dream was over. So, yeah. in a way, Blood on Satan's Claw was, was, was maybe going, no, it fucking isn't. No, it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I think, yeah, but at the same time, it, it, you know, it, 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 I think the fact that at the end it isn't in the in the minds of the adults that it is actually there is something really terrible happening right now, right <laughs> out there, and Patrick Weimark is completely right in his in his <laughs> accusations to go out there and start hacking away. 
But, but it, I don't think, I mean, it, it may sound like a crass comparison, but I hadn't thought about it until you started talking about, about this film, is that I, I watch a lot of sort of, um, sort of the alt-right libertarian nonsense that goes on out there in the, in the YouTube world. And, and, I, and I've watched a lot of um, Douglas Murray, who's a British guy. I don't know if you know the, 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 the fella. But, I don't. But he talks a lot about why do the adults listen to the children? Yeah. Why, why do we let them tell us? Why do we cave in? And and it's kind of like that is a that is a conservative standpoint, isn't it? It's like I'm older than you, therefore I'm better than you, therefore do as I tell you. Don't tell yeah. me what you've learned. Don't tell me what you've discovered. You know, I don't want to know. Do you think what echoes do you think there are from Blood and Satan's Claw? Because it's, I mean, I guess the obvious one with with the witching element being being for real, as it were, or being being a real lust, being a, a real lust for life within within the youngsters would be uh, the witch that you know came out yeah. last year. Do you, what other echoes do you see with uh, Blood and Satan's uh, well, Club? I think you could argue Blood and Satan's Club would, you know, has influenced its huge amounts in terms of, you know, um, you know, the, we were in a, a renaissance in terms of folk horror. Um, so we've got things like um, uh, Wakewood, um, pretty much, you know, a lot of Ben Wheatley's stuff uh, in particular, um, the uh, field in England and um, to a lesser extent Kill List. Mm. All those kind, of, although those those kind of films are are are, are heavily influenced by the general feel, but also, I mean, <clears throat> the 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 I think you know when you look at things like Scarfolk, you know the the, the website and discovering Scarfolk the book, that kind of natural distrust, an adult's natural distrust for their own offspring, kind of expecting them to rise up and kind of attack them. Um, very comfortable. Number nine, which uh, they, you know, last last season they did a, a very strong kind of witch finder general's kind of theme to it, but in terms of its tone and, it, and the way it was shot, felt a lot more like Blood and Satan's Claw than the other things that it was referencing. Oh, that's an alarm. That's list. an alarm. We're on, we're on our first ten minutes. I was watching that go down. I was thinking, oh, look at that. Just, there's going to be a listener going, oh, let him carry on talking. But I'm, I'm going to stay. We can come back to some of these things if it, if it, if it marries up, because I think it'll, it'll develop. So, yeah. next 10 minutes. Uh, 1972, what are you going to talk about? Yeah, yeah. In, 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 in a, con- a continuing theme that I didn't realise that my, my favourite stuff comes from a really, very <laughs> t- narrow and tight period of time, um, <laughs> is a TV movie this time. So, 1972's The Stone Tape. Yeah. Uh, which is Nigel Neal, which was on, I think it was Christmas Day on on on, on BBC television. Blows uh, my mind, that fact. Sorry? It blows my mind, that fact. <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I remember watching Hammer Horror films on um, kids, on, on TV, particularly over that kind of, that dead zone Christmas period, you know, between... Christmas and New Year on Channel Four when I was a bit younger, and I think it, it horror generally sits really, really nicely around Christmas. And I know, mm. you, you know, I'm sure, you know, the ghost stories for Christmas and stuff like that. Um, but they tended to be couched in feeling quite comfortable because the period pieces. So the, there's an element of safety. The Stone Tape doesn't have that. It it, it has a. Um, it's very much tries to be modern, modern in the a way that 1972 is modern, but um, but it's a very much a modern day ghost story and a, a story that I think you could probably do again now. I think um, 
I think there was a radio drama version of it a couple of years ago with uh, Roller Gary. Um, so I think was, I'm going to say let's give let's give the the audience again. I'll, I'll just give brief summaries to what the what the story is, just to give you some sense of what Christmas Day was like in 1972. Uh, a, re- <laughs> a research team from an electronics company move into an old Victorian house to start work on finding a new re- a new recording medium. When team member Jill witnesses a ghost, team director Peter decides not only to analyse the apparition, which he believes is a psychic impression trapped in a stone wall, dubbed a stone tape, but to exercise it with terrifying results. I'd love to have been at the meeting where they go, yeah, let's do that at Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's... Um... And it's loud. It's really loud. It's a really loud pro- film. Um, okay, so um, there's there's a lot of reasons why I like uh, the Stone Tape. Uh, mm. I wanted, to, I wanted, I really wanted to include a Nigel Neal uh, scripted uh, f- f- film, and um, that wasn't just you know Quatermass or something. Okay. Although Quatermass is brilliant, and all those three Quatermass films are brilliant. Quatermass in the Pit is is a wonderfully intelligent and written um, a horror ghost story. Well, yeah, horror story really because it's aliens in it, but hmm. um, but stone tape is really striking in terms of again, I think possibly because as you were saying, you know, Christmas, Christmas Day, Christmas time, and uh, imagine you've got your your big turkey dinner, bottle of wine, bloat on the go, and then it's quite slow. It kind of drags drives you in. You, you, again, the one the joys of a one location horror story, which I, I absolutely love, and. Um, you're very much in that room with those scientists and something is happening and you're not sure what it is. They're, they're very, they, they kind of decide very quickly that it's supernatural, but it's not, there, there seems to be other things at play and it's not as clear cut as that. But when they're testing, they're actually testing the sound and trying to, trying to create this, uh, this monster um, by using, or not, not a monster as such, but you know, this apparition mm. by using sound. It, on the TV, it's so loud. All the levels are through the roof. So imagine late at night and this thing just pounding away, this noise pounding away. And it just wake everybody up from their slumber, you know. And um, <clears throat> so it has fantastic sound design. And it's of its time, I think, in terms of, obviously, the, the equipment feels like... Um, some. Uh, you look at it now, it's, you know, it's all... Um, you know, osteographs and, you know, reams and reams of, like, you know, printer paper that's on a reel and um, huge microphones, like big boom and things. And, and you know, you, you have to say the, it, 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 the, the main dynamics are between um, Michael Bryant's character and uh, Jane Asher's character mm. of, of two people who um, are trying to... Um, Trying to kind of they, 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 they spend a lot of time arguing and no and Jane kind of basically keeps on saying I can't that's not her name I think in the character's name is Jill Jill constantly keeps on saying all the time that you know there's something not right here it's wrong and she basically gets dismissed as an hysterical woman while all the time the entire story is bogged down in complete hysteria anyway so it's <laughs> it's 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 a Hysteria is is a perfectly normal response to seeing what's happening happening, and then for the person you're working with to deliberately pro- poke it with a stick, you know, <laughs> to, 
to make it work. So it kind of fits in with uh, societal norms and criticisms of them as a layer in terms of almost like abusive relationships and truth, you know, the, and and the effects that can cause. And then it's at its end, it, it's very horn and it. Uh, I liked I like a lot of those kind of TV ghost stories for Christmas, and I know that, again they've had a renaissance recently. But um, I, I like a I like a ghost story that isn't afraid to kind of a kind of try and do something different, but but b kind of just show the ghost as being a phenomena. I mean the, the name Stone Tape is the idea that uh, the actual our, our surroundings are around us are recording what we do at any point, and if it's a particular pitch and a particular medium, then that will you know it will record it. That, it's my favourite. It's my most favourite theory about what ghosts, what we, what, what we believe ghosts are, is that the mm. buildings re, sort of retain something. Mm. Absolutely. Because um, they've done they've done experiments, haven't they? Where you, where if you at a certain sound level, they've done it at concerts. People leave feeling disturbed yeah. when you hit a certain level. Um, and, and I guess the thing with this that's interesting, if you get like it's the flip side of the folk, of the seventeenth century folk horror, is here you are right up to date, and you've got man with technology thinking it can beat the other world because it has technology now. Yeah, which is kind of an which is almost it's like a metaphor for arrogance, isn't it? In a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the it, the fact that you know initially you know there's a money incentive for them to do what they're doing. Mm. And they, they, they feel like, you know, if we can crack this, this is going to be better than cassette tape or, you know, analog tape, as, as was the, the future at that point. Hmm. Uh, and so there's, there's very much like that. But as things start breaking down, it becomes increasingly clear that that isn't Michael Bryant's chief reason for doing it, that he's doing it for other reasons. And, and a lot of that is power and control and the ability to try and manipulate the world around him. And, and, um, you know, I think it's a it's a classic. I think it's a classic horror dynamic of there being a monster that is, you know, the big bad, whatever that might be, but mm. there being a, a, a dominant male who's willing to push everyone around him up to a brink that makes the inevitable happen. And how much of a, a bad influence is that person on that dynamic and that, and that group? Chris, just just hold your thoughts a second. I've got some at the door. We'll be a sec. And therein lies the harsh realities of uh, the cottage industry, that is, podcast recording, when the Wizard of Oz curtain is drawn back on the um, illusion of um, something that's, that's like radio, when in fact it's two people talking on a Skype call on laptops. Anyway, back to the interview. Right, let's kick on. Right, sound yes. So, so yeah. So the you know the 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 effectively that character that um, uh, uh, Peter, I think the character's name is, is 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 much of a bad influence. I mean, the ghost itself, uh, you could argue, is you know, it, it's just a, it's a phenomenon. It, it's no more dangerous than you know a river or or you know a, a, a train on train tracks it's dangerous if you meddle with it in the wrong way but you know if you if you were careful if you to understand it you know you would get more from it but instead what we get is these extended scenes of deafening deafening noise uh, and in a tight claustrophobic space and the, again the sound design is, is fantastic and it. it just breaks into these big pulsing banging noises which must have I could only imagine what people were like when they watch us jolt them awake in the, in the in the you know in their slumber mm. um to to kind of you know to, to unsettle and to unnerve 
And um, as, a, as a ghost story, it's, um, you know, it, it, it does all the right things in terms of the fact that it's, it's far more than just somebody who, you know, finds a, you know, a, a document or, or, or a book that, uh, that can lead to, to trouble. And I, I, although obviously now it feels dated because of the technology around them. I think it was kind of based on um, old BBC uh, department um, kind of, you know, they must have just got a load of gear from one of the sound departments and they're going to lump it all together. So it's, it looks very 70s. And they, obviously they talk about, you know, videotape being the future. But, um, but you know, it, it, it's still a it's, a, it's very much a traditional ghost story, but told in a far more modern way. And again, in a, in a, in a way far, far better than possibly um, you'd expect from a, a TV movie from that point. I was going to say, it's interesting because it is a TV movie, obviously not one that got released, but it's one that's obviously stayed around because of, um, I mean, I guess because of our, our, the, the way genre fans work in terms of the, the love of stuff, and, and also I, I, I want to archive now. I mean, I, I, I was what, Christmas Day, I was watching Robin Redbreast. I got, I got yeah. that for, you know, somebody got me that for Christmas. And, Fantastic. You know, so the, the, this whole BFI um, review of these these British because they don't these don't get commissioned anymore, do they? In the same no. way, um, and I was thinking into, but also the content of it. There's there's echo, I mean, the year later you had uh, Legend of Hell House, didn't you? I mean, yeah. a very diff, a very a proper you know proper movie release and everything. But but that has that where you've got the idea of investigating the apparition and the use of seventies technology to, uh, to 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 tame the beast, as it were. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, and I think. Um... But yeah, I mean, it, I think those, those BFI uh, releases, have, have, without doubt, have kind of is, is been the catalyst for this. I mean, this was released as a limited, uh, was was kind of a limited run initially, and it went back out of print for a while. Oh, we're up. We're oh. Time, time's up. Look at that. Oh, People are going to kick me again here. They're going, Stuart, you're talking too much. Um, <laughs> right then. So the next ten minutes is. We've started in 1971, we've been to 72, and I promise you we are going to leave the 70s, but for now, we're going to be 1973. Do you want to tell us what film we're talking about here? It is Theatre of Blood. Now, before we get into it, let me just, because it's the greatest, shortest description, and I would have loved to have pitched this, a Shakespearean actor takes poetic revenge on the critics who denied him recognition. What a great pitch for a movie. It is. It is it's a perfect pitch. It's tight. It's contained. It's a, it doesn't really give you any kind of... Because that makes it sound really sinister. Like, yeah. it's a really horrible film. But, um, okay, so Vincent Price. Now, for me, Vincent Price has one... I, I, obviously, Price's career has periods of time. So, you know, you've got Corman period and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, along with his uh, cookery period as well, which is a fantastic Price period of time. <laughs> but... Um, there was a period of time when he was he was in the UK working and um, he did a lot of great stuff. So you could probably start that off with which find the general as we've spoken up previously. Yeah. Um, then two fives movies, uh, Theatre of Blood, Madhouse, and he also did The Price of Fear for BBC Radio, which is like a horror anthology uh, radio program. Well, I've never heard that one. Oh, yeah, search out for Price of Fear. There's some great writing in there. It's a bit like mm. Tales from the Unexpected. It's very okay, good. Okay, cool. Uh, he kind of, yeah, he introduced, again, it's a bit like um, those kind of, you know, like a murder she wrote or something where you're like, if somebody had this mus- misfortune around them, surely the police would get involved. <laughs> wherever, wherever Vincent Price goes, mayhem issues, which I, I, I well, if only that was, was, I wish that was true. I wish that was true. But um, <clears throat> Theatre of Blood is um, high camp 
even even by price standards. By his standards, yes. Yeah, even even as far as that is, you know, Fibes is is fantastic. It's wonderfully designed, but Fierce of Blood is genuinely funny, genuinely funny, and a staggeringly good cast. So Price plays this incredibly arch, highbrow uh, Shakespearean actor who's totally unhinged, completely and utterly nuts, and uh, who appears to have died and uh, hasn't. He's just been hiding out for years, kind of planning his campaign against the critics who kind of ruined his career. Because despite in his mind being one of the great Shakespearean actors, he's actually a hack, absolute hack. So um, him and his daughter, uh, played by Diana Rigg, uh, in v- don variety of disguises and then serve up uh, Shakespearean deaths to the critics. <laughs> that uh, it's just, and it, it, you know, it's it sounds like League of Gentlemen. It sounds like League of Gentlemen. Well, it, well, let's be honest. It's not Million Miles, is it? No, no. I'm, apparently, it was an influence on them. Uh, but you know, the, so the people you've got as as actors, you've got Michael Horden, uh, you've got Arthur Lowe who pops up in there. Eric Sykes is in it. Diana Dawes appears. I mean, as a a collection of that period of time and, and who who'd want in that in those films it um it really it, it it's wonderful and of course it, it gives price the ability so he kills somebody and then just has a little aside shakespearean sonnet or or, or quote just to you know just to round off that how archly camp his mind is at this point um and it's really imaginative. Um, so, you know, they, 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 they bury, they, people get drowned in wine. And then suddenly, with about two thirds of the way through, and you kind of think, this is, this is getting a bit long. This is starting to feel a bit long. They suddenly stop and they just do this incredible scene. The reason why I picked it was they force feed a man to death with his own poodle, um, which it, 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 it's so jarring because you're meant to find it funny. And when I said it, I was like, I don't know if that's funny. Because it's, <laughs> it's not funny. It's not it's funny, not no. Funny. It's not funny. It's genuinely horrifying. And it comes completely out of nowhere. It absolutely blindsides you. But Price is still playing it really arch and really camp. And it's, it's all meant to be kind of silly fun. And, you know, they've got a film crew with them. And it's it, it, it built up to, like... Just ridiculous degrees, and the amount of effort he's gone to to make to, to effectively just suffocate this bloke is huge, absolutely huge. But uh, but it just crosses the line. It really does. Just just really it does. Actually, I say cross. It leaps over, gleefully leaps over the line to bad taste. I think maybe really in truth to kind of because at that stage you're just cheering them on to be more and more terrible things. And then finally, you know, you get the, the Shakespearean kind of... It feels very almost Hammer-esque with the buildings on fire and all, all those kind of elements that you always get with people's undoings as the police kind of, you know, close in on our murderer. Is the po- I'm trying to remember now. Is the poodle with the hairdresser? No, no, no. The poodle is... Um, it's when he rocks <laughs> up. I can't remember which actor it is, which is annoying me. Uh, it's not Michael Horton, that one. Uh, doesn't matter. We are, we are on a time limit, yeah. but um, but uh, the, the the hairdresser one is um, 
it's with his wife, isn't it? Is it Car- is it Carol Brown? Mm, yeah, because uh, he could yeah. the amazing afro. Yes, he plays he, he plays this um, archly, you know, in a, a, a camp, campus camp beyond the camp of the film. Yeah. He's got, yeah, he's gone, he's gone, you know, we really need to make this camp now. Because incredibly camp hairdresser, played by Price, who is more camp than he, he normally is anyway. And the, the tie Carol Brown down and then the electrocutor That's with right. one of those massive hair things that they used to have for, for perms. Dryers yeah, for perms, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and in front of the police, literally the police are just upstairs just casually, because by this stage they've all got police guards, so he just, that doesn't seem to be an issue here. And, uh, and he electrocutes him and makes his escape, yeah. The, um, the, the poodle one is, the, they start off, they, they knock on his door, they say, oh, we're this TV programme, and they've got all this branding for the TV programme. Of course. And now we're going to make you this great, great meal. <clears throat> and then just shovel, literally shovel this stuff down, in the, in comb down into his throat. And... Um, yeah, uh, but, uh, but the, 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 bit, the moment with the tramps, which is, I think is the opening death, isn't it? Is the opening yeah, death, the yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's pretty distasteful. I mean, in, in in the in you know in a camp movie, it kind of isn't yeah. it isn't laughing as loudly as some of Vincent Price's performances because it's proper gruesome horror, isn't it? Yeah, I think initially when it starts off, it it is pretend you know it, it kind of does feel like a, a standard horror film. It's only when um, Price really starts ramping up, or Edward L- Lionheart, I think his character's name is, the Lionhearts uh, ramp up their, their campaign, and suddenly Diana Riggs walking around dressed as, with, like, you know, moustaches <laughs> and big oh, that's hair. That's right, that's right. And it's like, yeah, a, it's, it's meant to be a, you know, it's a, it's a hidden, it's meant to be a plot twist, isn't it? But it, they, they, they deliberately signpost it to a point that's really obvious <laughs> what's happening. And this this film got, recent, I mean, I reviewed it on Britflix, this, this got a... Um... Uh, Blu-ray, didn't it? Uh, two, two, was it 2K or 4K Master? It's a 2K scan, yeah. 2K Master, wasn't it? And that was, uh, that was beautiful, wasn't it? It's a beautiful thing. I mean, again, those, you know, what happened was AIP, um, well, because of um, the, the, the tax breaks that were currently there through, because I think it was the box office tax, so uh, you'd be, you know, a percentage of any cinema ticket would go back into creating British films. AAP saw this, and even though it's American international pictures, came over and just started using British crews and making these really lush films. I mean, you look at Fibes, just absolutely beautiful, really, really great stuff. I mean, I mean, probably Fierce of Blood isn't as, you know, has the, it doesn't have the set design and, and the, the high grand arch campness of, of the two Fibes films. But what it does have is this just really mad tone. But, I mean, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a fag paper between, you know, in terms of structure, between Fives and Theatre of Blood. You've got an unhinged person going after the people that wronged him uh, in very imaginative ways, whether it be Fives. Well, Fives, obviously, is, isn't played for laughs. It's well, played as, as very much a, just art deco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Theatre of Blood is kind of... It's, on the one hand, it's obviously just a straightforward sort of very organised slasher. Yeah. <laughs> but also, because of the, the the difference between the set pieces, it's arguably, it plays like an anthology, doesn't it? Because, yeah. because it reaches a crescendo, which is like the wraparound in an anthology. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, um, you know, uh, you kind of get into a rhythm with it, don't you? Because, you know, it, it very much says there are this number of 
art critics, mm. theatre critics. And they're, so you're kind of like, well, you know, we are three deaths in, there are four people left. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. I'm pretty clear how this is going to go. <laughs> um, you know, we're about an hour in. I think I know what, I think I've got the pace in this film pretty much down. And it, but it, it does kind of like, kind of ramp up its, you know, its pace and to try and kind of keep the momentum going. I think. Oh, the alarm's oh, gone. Look at that, eh? You'll ne- we'll never know what I think about that. We'll never know. Right then, dear audience. We're going to leap forward now, not only to a dystopian future, but to 1990. Do you want to tell us what, we're, what British horror film we're discussing now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, in 1990, uh, when it came out, I was 10 years old, sure. and uh, I was very obsessed with this film that I couldn't go and see, which was uh, Hardware by uh, Richard Stanley. You see, now, if, if we're just, just for context then, I was... How old was I? I was 18. Yeah, you bang on for that one. And I was also into ministry <laughs> and all that not paraphernalia. I had a biker jacket with Godflesh written on the back. So when Hardware came along, it was like someone had made a horror film for me. Yeah. It's my contest, but please go on. No, it's, uh, I think absolutely. I think um, the, the, the thing about Hardware in particular was I wasn't able to see that film, but I was able to read 2000 AD, which I was doing at that point. When I was, uh, <laughs> far too young. Far, far too young to Are you, you going to mention the, the writing credits of this movie? <laughs> uh, I, yes. Um, yes, I am. Um, so Hardware is heavily influenced by uh, what was at the time an old 2018 story called Shock, yeah. which uh, was done by Steve McManus and Kevin O'Neill. And uh, Shock is a very tight, quite short uh, story, and it's literally uh, an android on the rampage tale, uh, but told through that 2000 AD style and uh, very, very cyberpunky. And, um, and just, the just, reason- just, just for comparison, sorry, just for comparison then. The summary of hardware is the head of a cyborg reactivates and rebuilds itself and goes on a violent rampage in a space marine girlfriend's apartment. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the film. It is so simple in terms of its storytelling. It's, um, it, it, does, it does everything, as you would imagine. It even has a false ending about an hour in, if I remember rightly. Yeah, it does, yeah, yeah, yeah. Real proper false ending as well, when you're like, this is a short film. <laughs> oh, no, no, there's another half hour of this. Um, so, uh, yes, but <clears throat> I think, well, first off, I think people always talk about 2018. And I think, you know, it's influence. And uh, I've, I've picked something that is, has been very obviously influenced by 2018. Because mm. you, know, you can see some of the shots in the, in the frames of that original story. The, you know, you, there's no way Richard Stanley could ever pretend that there wasn't a strong influence on, on, on his work. But they didn't for, see they didn't see the credit at first, did they? Not that came came during the process that, of making it, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what they did was, uh, you know, it, it, I think it, it, that once it kind of been, it, it became increasingly clear that how, how strong the influences were. There was kind of a backpedal, and kind of they were given the credits. But again, bear in mind, two thousand and eight, they were they were given away. You know, they've always not exactly. They haven't been great with the, the creators uh, in terms of you know whether they give away you know for you know, penny deals on intellectual intellectual property for you know potential films in the future mm. on the off chance that that will then lead to more sales. Yeah. Or you know the fact that they do like some a lot of comic book uh, companies do that you know the, the artists don't own 
the the material after after it's been submitted to 2008 as a mm. contract, mm. which you know that you know we could go into that stuff for for a while, and it's very notorious in that kind of sense for, for creators. You know, it's it's almost like you know you should be pleased you're writing for 2008. Um, but on the other hand, um, what what hardware does? Uh, I think it kind of does show that 2008 has had an influence on on, on pop culture generally and mm. uh, and film culture and. Um, uh, yeah, let's put the two dread films to one side and just kind of say that kind of you know, eighties, nineties uh, sci-fi dystopianism that 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 was you know two thousand eighty stock and trade and yeah. quite uncomfortable <clears throat> right you know right wing ideas that are played for shock or for laughs um, that permeate a lot of this stuff in a kind of a blokey kind of way. Mm. And I think hardware is probably one of the fit, you know, definitely was one of the first times that that was so, so blatant and so obvious that, that, that this comic line had had such an effect on lads between us, our ages, you know what I mean? Mm. But um, in terms of why I picked hardware, uh, it's, it's incredibly tight as a film. I mean, it's, it, it, it tells its story. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, I suppose in terms of the fact, you know, it, it has a, a comic book feel, but it's, uh, whereas, you know, Terminator and Terminator 2 kind of have, have long periods where, where nothing happens or people talk about stuff or there's loud noises and then people like, you know, Terminator 2, which was obviously two years after this, uh, you know, is, is, is flabby, really flabby when you compare it in terms of that, the, the, the length of storytelling. I mean, hard, hardware is, you know, one of the things about hardware is you get to that hour before when the false ending kicks in and you're a bit like okay well that kind of makes sense that's that's sure but that you know that felt like a proper film because of the, the economy of storytelling mm. and then it kicks in again and it's like far more ramped up and it's more it's more even more in your face for that for that last kind of that that close and and and, and, the, and the shocks but also for what was on a massively low budget that that monster is really impressive like it it still feels like it works. I mean, I know they do a lot of stuff with filters. I mean, there are scenes in that which are basically completely red to kind of mask and cover what probably is, you know, some some dodgy uh, some dodgy mannequins and, and, and animatronics. But you know, this that that's it's a puppet, and they make that puppet look really frightening. No, it's it, 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 like I say, it was it was it was hand built for me. This movie at the time it came out. And I remember, I remember the direct comparisons more with what Terminator was, not what Terminator was to, not the sequel to come, like, but you know, talking, <coughs> saying a British Terminator, for example, was yeah. was was kind of the, the the hyperbole that followed it. But you have you also have uh, Lemmy doing a cameo. You have Carl McCoy, the Fields of the Nephilim singer. You've got Iggy Pop doing a yeah. voice, doing the radio voiceover. You have. I think Ministry are on the soundtrack, and and so you have this kind of clash of this this kind of industrial music, rock, you know, punk rock, metal um, influence over the top, which which obviously all those things would resonate with the things you're talking about with 2008 as well, because the 1980s, interestingly, 1991, I always feel is where the alternative, as we now know it, kind of ended, and it began to recycle itself, and there never was an alternative; it just was. A rehashed version. You think Britpop and stuff comes not long after, not yeah. long after the early nineties begin. Uh, you could almost say that Nirvana killed Alternative, strangely. Um, 
and and hardware represents that period i think that kind of that great period where before it changes because it's it's full of independent spirit there's no there's not, there's not a concession to the mainstream in it no absolutely not i mean it's um it, it i think that's what's so striking about it because it, it completely sits outside of I meaning you know it, it sits inside of concepts that you can understand because you know, it's it's a robot, it's a killer robot movie. You know, you understand that. Mm. But I mean, like like with a lot of Richard Stanley stuff, you know, you look at something like Dust Devil, mm. and like that is, I mean, it's 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 a western kind of, but it, again, it completely runs on its own rules, it, it to to an extreme amount, and um, it's you know, again, not particularly well well understood. I think that particularly that film, but. Um, you know, he he at, the, at that point before ever all the wheels fell off for him for, with Alan and Doctor Moreau, he was kind of you know he was a very unique voice and and, and willing to tell stories in a, in a in a very different way than you know you normally expect. And I guess the again like the Stone Tape um, hardware utilizes the the terror of being confined. You know, all the action more or less takes place in in the apartment, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I do love a, I love a, you know, a, 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 for me, the best kind of horror film, like Night of the Living Dead is perfect, because it, you know, it, it, you are in that house, and you are trapped in it, and, and Hardware has, it, 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 it doesn't, it, it drives the narrative of how trapped she is, with, with this, this, ma- I mean, it's, it's pretty big, this killer android is big, and mm. he dominates the space, and to be able to kind of, you know, to to create that much story from such a contained, tight space, I think just just shows exactly you know the the real skill in terms of talent, you know, of storytelling that he had at that time. No, for sure. And 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 uh, there's two two standout bits for me that have always stuck with me is um, the pervert across the way. Yeah. Um, the chilling rendition of "We All Walk the Wibbly Wobbly Walk." <laughs> which, which is which is never has sort of a childlike nursery rhyme taken on such a sinister tone. Hmm. Um, it's real sort of sex predator territory, isn't it? But yet, yeah, yeah. But yet it played is. played in such a really sort of cartoon way. But yet you're under oh. no illusion. This is nasty. And yeah. but but the syringe near the head while she's in the fridge is oh yeah yeah is I you know it's just an amazing moment. Yeah, no, it is, it is claustrophobic. And, oh! Oh, well, that's very well. You knew that was coming. That's a perfect way to close that up. <laughs> I wish I could say I did. I was, <laughs> I, was lit- I was concentrating there, and I was waiting for your comeback, and then my me, me phone went off. I'm like, you bugger. Right then. <laughs> so we've jumped, we've jumped from 73 to 1990. We're going to make an equally large jump now to yeah. another British horror film that you've chosen, and... We're going to jump to 2009. you want to tell us what that is? Uh, yeah, 2009 is Christoph Smith's uh, writer-director uh, film, Triangle. Now, I can hear some people in the audience taking a deep breath now. <laughs> I'm, I'm a massive fan of this film, and I've had many debates about it. There are people who, for some reason, and I think it's something you... You mentioned before we started, you're touching on with your with your last horror podcast. Is this 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 has a very big impact on people who have very Catholic taste in what a horror film should be? Do yeah. You, do you want to talk about what makes Triangle so interesting for you? Okay. Yeah. Um, Triangle. I think I, I hadn't realised that these two films were you know uh, this and and um, 
hardware were, were both um, right interactor, but obviously they are. Uh, Christopher Smith's triangle is <clears throat> has the benefit of somebody who has had a lot of control over everything in terms of how the story's been sculpted, how different elements. It's it's a it's a little puzzle box of a film, mm, mm. Um, and it has lots of ideas in it, and you could watch that. You know, first you can watch it five or you know ten times, and you can get something different from it from every time, just because how intelligently storyboarded it's been, how intelligently shot it's been, how every shot in that film relates to something else that's happening somewhere now, else. I've got to say, now you're saying that. Let me just read what how it's summarised on IMDb because I think it doesn't give you any clues as to where it, where you're going to go as a viewer because no. all it says is uh, the story revolves around the passengers of a yachting trip in the ocean who, when struck by a mysterious weather condition, jumped to another ship only to experience greater havoc on the open seas. That couldn't be more vague if it yeah. tried to be vague. And I, 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 I am traditionally quite a vague guy, and I'm trying not to kind of get too much <laughs> away, <laughs> even more so. Um, so I'm kind of trying to avoid kind of saying what is the intrinsic thing about Triangle that, you know, because if, if you know... And you haven't had that first kind of experience of watching it. I think you'd be a bit kind of waiting for something to happen, and uh, that doesn't help. But I mean, literally from its very start, everything everything is related. There is there is a, a grand scheme. It's a and that a mystery far beyond normally what you'd see in a, a, a film of this budget and this and this scope. And it's a real shame that people, more people aren't into it. I think it's a real. It, I think that you know you could you could argue there is a genre of cinema of films where you know, British films where you're like, how is this not bigger? You know what I mean? No, um, totally, but, but I think, but weirdly, I think this parallels with 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 um, with say the Babadook, mm. in the sense that that what's at the heart of uh, the mother's character. Isn't just the horror that she enters into, but the horror she's living. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's what makes it such a clever movie, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's um, it's very much through the prism of that one character, mm. and um, that that definitely kind of um, that that informs a lot of that story. I mean, you know, Babadook um, lights out as well. I mean, I've, I've got a bit, I'm a bit obsessed with lights out at the moment because it, it, I just it really riles me up because, it, but that's a story for a different day, possibly, but. Um, you know, it it's a film about a person's reactions to the world around them. Yeah. And again, nobody, you know, when you're in those kind of places mentally, you, you know, you need to find help. And a lot of people are incapable of helping you, or don't want to help you, or are off it, standoffish, or, or put or tribute blame. Mm. And um, that and that can lead to a great deal of horror. You know, in terms of you know what happens uh, to, to that person's mental state, but also physical state as well, which I think is something that Triangle plays around with a lot. Um, and Melissa, I, Melissa George is fantastic. Oh, uh, casting, isn't she? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think without Melissa George, I think it would have been quite a. You know, you, she she has to sell a lot yeah, in a short yeah. space of time because you know, if at any point the believability of what's happening to that character disappears, then. You know, the entire thought, everything would just fall apart in terms mm. of the narrative because you wouldn't be able to sell anything as, it, as as the story escalates and it becomes more increasingly clear what's happening. You wouldn't be able to sell any of that in without, firstly, a very likable 
actress and a very likable character, but also a very understandable one as well. And she sells in her reactions to the way the world is shifting around her extremely well. But um, yeah, so I think yeah, Triangle is, is great. I think we're going to say about people saying, because I've literally just finished, before I spoke to you, I've just finished my podcast this week, which is about things being not quite horror mm. or it's not horror or it's art house horror. And this need to define genre cinema as being genre. This is, and this can only fulfill my understanding of it. And I think we were saying about <clears throat> triangle is a very, very well shot film. It's very pretty. And, then, and for some reason, I think people kind of react negatively to, to horror films that are for some reason, that good, that well-made, that solid, and it is pit, it's absolutely intrinsically well-put-together triangle. So mm. to the point that people are like, well, it's a, fr- it's a fantasy thriller. In fact, here we go. I'm, look, I've got the IMDb in front of me. It's a fantasy mystery thriller, apparently, according to IMDb. It fucking isn't. It's a horror film. <laughs> how, can it be, how can it be a thriller? That's ridiculous. No, no, it's a... It's a I mean, it... it, it when you get to the end of the film, if you didn't think that was someone living a night, somebody living a nightmare somehow, some way, then you've watched a different film. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's insane. It's insane. And I find it strange that people wouldn't be wouldn't characterise that. But I, at the same time, yeah, I mean, but then again, you know, if if all horror is just a slasher movie a zombie film and that zombie film has to be you know like dawn of the dead then that's that's boring isn't it that's really boring and i think you know i mean we are in a great period of, of, of horror at the moment with things like you know the invitation um uh, under the shadow you know um babadook um, of, of 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 films which are attempting to say far more interesting things about the human condition or about personal hells or personal nightmares mm. or just society around us, which is kind of what the point of horror is anyway. You know, if you go back to you know, stories like The Hauler, you know, the, the, that old short story from, oh, God, fucking hell, 1910s, I think it was. You know, that story is about depression. It, all it's about. That story is about feeling about depression. And um, you can't... So, so, so to turn around and kind of suggest that because something has, you know, doesn't fulfil... St- incredibly tight genre restrictions it's somehow attempting to be art house as in effectively which is a slight on art house cinema generally but the concept that it would be somehow unacceptable or or un, 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 accessible to the common man it's, it's preposterous and, and, and negative and patronizing i think well i figure i figure then you must also you, you must also hate the term um elevated genre which was a fudge i think yeah to try and get non-horror fans to go and watch a film by not calling it a horror film, when patently let the right one in is a horror film. It is not elevated genre. <laughs> no, I mean, well, again, elevated insinuates that somehow the genre can't cover this stuff, that it's all just B-movies and, you know, Joe D'Amato stuff. And, you know, the, the, the concept, you know, look, look at Fulci, you know, look at Argento. You know, that, 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 that they are, as art forms, elevated but mm. the, the horror films. I mean, you know, you can't look at the beyond and say that isn't a fucking horror film. But it's just <laughs> it's surrealism. It's absolutely surrealism, and it's you know, it's 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 a complicated, well structured surrealist <clears throat> film. Suspiria, because of incredible cinematography, is 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 an elevated genre movie. But no one calls it that because it's an Argento movie. It's a horror film. It doesn't mm. matter. 
the, but there's a but I think that, that comes from two sides. One is people obviously looking down on genre, and on the other side of it is genre fans holding on to it and kind of say, "This is mine, this is mine. You can't keep away, keep away." You know, you don't you don't get. You know, it fucking it follows. You know what I mean? That it follows is a horror film. That is it. It's not art house horror. It is a. It's just really beautifully shot. Yeah, it's it's M R James in the hands yeah. of a lovely cinematographer. Yeah, exactly. So you know, and but you know that gets pushed away by certain fans because about genre fans because they are trying to prevent. You know, they're they're basically saying, well, that's 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 encroaching on my turf, and my turf could just be. I don't know, like the stuff AC8 films are putting out at the moment. I'm not got anything wrong with, you know, Italian genre cinema. I think a lot of it's great, but um, it's not everything, and well, it can't be everything. No, no, and it, it kind of it holds. It, there is almost like I've worked for this good film. You're not having it just by just because everyone else has agreed it's a good film. You have to watch a load of sludge first. Yeah. To to enjoy the reward of this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, look at that. Well, that's it. So, right then, sir, let's let's do a... I'll start the ball run again, so we've got ten minutes on a recap here. Okay. So, we have covered Blood on Satan's Claw, 1971, The Stone mm-hmm. Tape, 1972, uh, Theatre of Blood, 1973, then we've leapt to Hardware, 1990, and Triangle, 2009. Um, that, that's a very interesting bunch to answer the question... Give me a top five British films, which I know you're not saying these are the best five British horror films. No. Benny Stretch, there. What what is it overall that, that that influenced your choices to spread them that way? And it's interesting that you didn't really see that you truncated the first three over just thirty six months. Yeah, <laughs> or even yeah, no, twenty four months if you if you really just if you want to be a pedant, pedant about it. No, I, I I didn't. I honestly didn't know that until um, we we you, you said how what what order are we going to put this in? I'm going to do it chronologically, and then you look at the dates and you're like, oh my god, fucking <laughs> think about that. Um, but I think that, that again is very interesting. What because those three films are all very different. Of course. Uh, yeah. You know, again talking about the concept of the genre and what it is. I think what I was trying well, when you when you when you you, you, you contacted me and said you know would you be interested in having this conversation for the podcast. The first thing that flashes through your mind is if, if you Google top five British horror films, it will be as follows. Wicker Man, Dracula, um, probably uh, Dead of Nice. Um, then you've probably got something along the lines of, you know, it, it's really obvious. You know, oh, fucking uh, the, the, the Don't Look Now. You definitely have Don't Look Now. So basically, straight off the back there, you've got two films that were in their own double bill in the States with Wicker Man and Don't Look Now. Do you, but, want, uh, do you, want, to, do you want to know what the top five... When I did a survey of this for the Britflix website... Go ahead. It was Wicker Man number one. Yeah. Don't Look Now number two. Yeah. American Werewolf in London number three. Yeah. Blood on Satan's Claw number four. Oh, right. And Witchfinder General number five. Wow. Then, as we stretch out into ten, we get Hellraiser... Really? Legend of Hell House. Devil That's... Rides Out. Devil Rides Out. Peeping Tom. And then number 10 was The Innocents. Yeah, I was going to have that, that, that fifth one I was kind of building up to was probably going to be Peeping Tom. <laughs> um, but, um... I think you know, but uh, listen, that that that's a great that's a great list of films. But I think you know, when you're talking for an hour about it, we do not. The world's not need me talking for another ten minutes about the Wicker Man. No, uh, I, agree. I, I think yeah, we uh, everyone's at that. And again, 
You can put Wicker Man on in a cinema today and it will sell out. People love that film and it looks great on the big screen. And again, is that a horror film or is it a musical? But um, you know, you can you can equally argue it, 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 that you know, the acceptability of, of that stuff. I think the reason why people are more forgiving of Wicker Man with this kind of elements is because it, it, again, Wicker Man had to fight hard to get on that list. It's it, it, it had a real battle on its hands just because of the way it's kind of been well, pretty poorly treated in truth over the years. You know, um, whether it be you know be part of a, a motorway and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, M, is it under the M3 or the M4? Something like that. I think it's the M4, but I can't remember. But um, you know, and all those stories around it, and you know, the, 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 the theatrical cut being not as good as as the as the longer cuts. And, well, the, the, and the, all, the B the B movie version of it was what 65, 70 minutes. It's like? tight. Yeah, it's tight. It is tight. But we, we're talking about Wicker Man again, so which we're also going to do. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> so yeah, let's get back to your five then. So, so, so what, yeah, give, so us, wanted, give us. I wanted to pick uh, something that kind of spoke about different elements of British horror. I want, I, I definitely needed something from Vincent Price's Purple Patch. My favourite, my favourite Price is, is Price from that period. And um, you can't talk about um, you can't talk about folk horror without including one of the Unholy Trinity. Mm. So that 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 was that covered. But also, you know, the opportunity to talk about Triangle presents itself, and I, I, I do I do love that film so much because it is absolutely. Pinch perfect, inch perfect, beautifully crafted, and you know, in the same way, Halloween. Every second of that film is absolutely bang on in terms of creating the world around. The triangle is exactly the same. It does not waste a second to get you where it needs to get you. It's it, it, it's wonderful from that point of view. I think, um, you think you've inspired me because I, I did I did a script to screen with James Moran on Severance, which obviously Chris directed. Yeah. Um, and given that Chris directed uh, Triangle, not that I've got any contacts with Chris, but I'll, uh, I'm going to try and put the feelers out, see if I can get him on to talk about... Because you're right, there is... Because of the puzzle box element to to the film, which is part of the enjoyment of watching it, is like, is that the first time it, it clicks, you go, where have you just gone? You've just moved... That wasn't the film I was watching. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, it clicks yeah. again, you go, oh, well, well done a minute. <laughs> I've got to concentrate now, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> and when it concludes, I mean, there are different. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, can we do? Do you want? Do you want? Uh, I'm fearing spoilers. If we said spoilers, yeah, let people know. So if you want to, if you don't want triangle spoiled for you in the last four minutes of this conversation, um, <laughs> turn off now. Turn you're still listening. Because <laughs> it that film. Is the death dream of the mother, yeah? Yeah. Because yeah. I've had that. I've debated this, and people have said no, it's not. And I'm like, what, do, do you think it's supernatural? Yeah. Oh right, okay. Which, uh, I, can, I, think... which I can buy, and that's great. That, that, that there's, that, there's that deviation. I mean, I've just had a conversation before you and I spoke. I was speaking to Billy O'Brien about I'm not a serial killer, mm. and I revealed that I read the film wrong <laughs> in terms of my <laughs> conclusion. And, and what he intended. Not that, I, not that I'm wrong, but I'm different. And then yeah. when he told me, I'll, and, got, and it's, the beauty of it is, it means go back and watch it again and see the seeds that you missed. And that's what yeah. Triangle enables you to do, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 totally. totally. I mean, the, uh, I think it, Triangle's about, you know, it's, it's intrinsically about somebody who's constantly trying to change what can't be changed. I mean, that's its overarching message. Mm. Um, so for that to work from a narrative point of view, I, you kind of do need it to be kind of a fatalist journey, I think. 
if, if it's just somebody who's kind of trapped in a spook, then again, it is called triangle, you know, that alludes to, you know, time slips and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if, if I could do this again, could I do it differently? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah. It's the inverse you know. of Final Destination, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or proof that Final Destination is right, that you will die. Or will, death will come. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't cheat it. But it, yeah. the fact is it makes you, makes you work for that and reveals it. And the reveal is quite, in of itself, is quite, jar, is quite jarring and not doesn't ease you into it. It just it, it says it, it, it exhausts you with the can I change this? Yeah. And then finally it stops exhausting you and lets you relax. And it's almost like she obviously it's the way Melissa does the plays the role and everything. It's almost like she the character herself is is accepting at the time in the movie. Yeah. Um which what makes it so satisfying. Yeah, yeah. Um the the definitely I mean, you know, I think the thing about it is it's so confusing because it's like, again, the entire the entire piece is 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 it, is it within that narrative structure, do you know what I mean? Mm. There isn't like a point when suddenly it clicks to ah, well, you know, now the world's changed for it. From the very start, it's all within that that unreliable narrator, I suppose, in a sense. And all from that Melissa George's point of view. So that's what makes it kind of hard to get more, less tangible because at no point are you not contained within the trap no totally totally um so we've uh, we're gonna we're gonna draw this podcast to a close chris mm-hmm. um so do you want to give us um give people the name the name of you, you, you what you're currently doing and how they yeah. can get to it yeah, okay, so if uh, if that rambling was something that you want to listen to more of, if you go to thelasthorrorpodcast.com, um, there's the new feed up there and uh, various articles and bits of writing and stuff like that. Kind of increasingly trying to get all my stuff in one place. So um, that that's there and then the usual places one would find a podcast. Uh, podcast, pod, can I say it? Podcast. And if so people uh, send you an email uh, on your sign-up, they'll sign up to get in a... A playlist of uh, yeah. horror, horror musical themes, as it were. For yeah, yeah. So um, every week there's an email. There's a there's a there's an email, and it, it's kind of music, kind of influenced on the films I've been talking about, um, just to kind of give some you know something something else rather than just me chunnering on, and without and also without kind of littering my podcast with copyrighted music. It's kind of look, you can listen to this as well. No, <laughs> you should be Spotify accounts. Totally, totally, and and so and, and just to let and the archive of your what's the other website, the other places they can get your uh, your, your your other sort of series because they're quite contained, aren't they? Uh, yeah. yeah. So if you go to um, if you go to videonastiespodcast dot com, that's that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, history of horror. Uh, yeah, it's historyofhorrorpodcast.com, dot com. That's on that one. And Night Gallery is currently moving because it's on somebody else's network as a podcast network. But if you check on iTunes, I'm sure you'll be able to find it somewhere. Well, I'll put, I'll put links in the show notes mm-hmm. so people can uh, can check this out at their leisure. Oh there, oh. Goes, oh, there goes the timer. There goes the timer. Well, look, sir, it's been an absolute joy. Yeah. Rambling, rambling through five very different British horror films, but but British nonetheless. Mm. And, we don't, and we don't say that as a well. I don't say that. I don't emphasise that word as a uh, want to leave Europe and be, <laughs> be, be an island of our own prosperity. But I say that in a sense of an identity which makes them interesting um, yeah. and, and reflects a culture that I'm familiar with. And 
and and I guess I guess the seventies one, I mean, and and the nineties one because we're looking back is uh, the 90s one because I was old enough to be part of that culture I suppose and it was a subculture and, and obviously 2008 was definitely a subculture um, there was something that hit its own little zeitgeist that probably most people wouldn't have most people who were 18 at the time I was wouldn't have been experiencing but I was I felt like it was the most important thing in the world <clears throat> whereas I'm, I guess if you spoke to uh, an 18 year old in 1972 when they sat down to watch Stone Tape for, after Christmas dinner I'm sure they were thinking about you know the prospect for the future, mm, yeah, and what, this totally. all, and what this all meant. Um, equally, equally, a 22 year old hippie looking at blood and Satan's claw, going, "God, we fucked it up, didn't we?" <laughs> <laughs> the liberal, the liberal dream never happened. Um, well, it's like if you listen to commentary from like bloody Dick Cheney and people like that, they basically say that once the hippies got killed by Hell's Angels, the dream was over. And they knew that conservatism would win out, which is scary. So, I mean, I'm, I know they're saying it after the event, but it's still scary that even that thought I was entering the red. It's like they really did fear a cultural revolution that was that wasn't. I guess it wasn't the capitalist system. I mean, we, you know, you think of the. I mean, it's weird to draw these parallels when we're talking about five British, five disparate British horror films, but it's hard not to because mm. life is where the horror comes from, isn't it? Because what we know yeah, is normal right. and what we fear, uh, uh, the, the, the place between is horror. The horror genre. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I think you know. I mean, the, the you know. I think or, yeah, if you want to, if you want to f- understand what, where a culture is at any point in time, look at the horror. Because what you're looking at is if the things that either you know titillate them or the things that actually genuinely frighten them. And I think that's probably true right the way back from the 30s and 40s through to today. Totally, totally. Well, look. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix. Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.